Hello and welcome to the Warrior Nation podcast, a deep dive into war, security, foreign policy and militarism in modern Britain, produced and edited by Forces Watch. Forces Watch is a UK organisation dedicated to providing critical information on militarism and military ethics and human rights concerns. I'm Joe Glenton. I'm a former soldier, Afghanistan veteran, author, defence journalist and now Forces Watch comms officer. I'm Rihanna Louise. I work on education and outreach at Forces Watch. I've authored numerous reports and resources and conducted extensive research into military recruitment, militarism and anti-militarism in the UK. For our first episode, we interview Paul Dixon, the author of a report called Warrior Nation, after which our podcast is named. This report details an increased period of militarisation in Britain, or a militarisation offensive which began around 2006. We discuss what militarism looks like in Britain today, and how the dominant military narrative in which generals, having failed to win wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, blamed the politicians, despite having themselves pushed for maximum involvement. This provided the crisis that justified calls for increased military spending and the promotion of the military. We talk about how this stab-in-the-back narrative is exploited by the far right and other ways in which militarisation has threatened and continues to threaten British democracy. Okay, so Paul, thank you for joining us. Uh, great to have you down. Um, and as you know, our podcast is named after the report um, that you wrote and we, we published last year, Warrior Nation. Um, could you just talk to us about the title a little bit and why, how you came up with it and what it means? So I chose Warrior Nation because it's the title of a book by a guy called Michael Paris. And what he was interested in doing is looking at the militarisation of British culture over hundreds of years. And it was in reading that book I realised how deeply embedded militarism is in, in British history and British culture. And indeed, you know, how much of a victim of that I was myself as a, a boy growing up, reading all the war comics and parading around the garden in military uniform. You know, in the history that I studied, a lot of the wars and the military heroes were picked out of that history and held up as role models. So the idea of Warrior Nation was not just to look at the power of the military within the British state, but this, see how far it it permeates, it insinuates itself into more general British culture. I go for a kind of broad definition of militarism that tries to draw attention to the range of factors that influence militarisation, not just the more obvious elite level ones, but the, the wider cultural ones that affect how politicians make their decisions. So President Eisenhower back in the 1950s talked famously about the military-industrial complex mm -hmm. and the incentives between uh, the military who wanted to increase their power and increase the prestige of their organisation by greater defence expenditure, uh, the politicians who wanted to bring money back to their constituencies and industrial interests that want to make more weapons. Uh, and make a lot more profit. Uh, they call it the iron triangle of interest that uh, got behind increased defence expenditure. And President Eisenhower expressed concern that this was becoming um, uh, a very powerful influence on policy. And that was significant because significant Eisenhower himself had been commander of yeah, Allied forces yeah. in World War Two. 
since then, I guess a lot of the research has has looked at uh, broader reasons for militarization and the influence of the the military even in the entertainment industry in influencing the kind of films that are produced and supporting some films and not others depending on whether they like the script whether it portrays the military in a positive or negative light um but we'd widen all of that to the education system, what kind of history is taught in in schools, how we experienced hierarchical organisations, where does the uniform come from, where do cubs come from, you know, and, and, and those kinds of values that we might end up feeling are intuitive actually come from somewhere. And it's sometimes when you go to other countries where they don't have these kind of militarist traditions that you kind of realise how peculiar the UK can be in, in being seeped in this militarised history. I think that sometimes violence can't be avoided and therefore to some limited extent you need to generate support in a society for some kind of use of force. I guess the problem is, is that in British society that militarisation is excessive and it has made Britain far more prone to fighting wars than a lot of countries would be, partly because of this general militarisation of our history and our society. I'm interested in a broad definition of the term militarism and there I want it to refer both to the power of the military um, but also particularly as it relates to the UK the spread of conservative military values uh, within Britain. Some people would say that militarism can be of the left as well as the right and I think that's correct. Um, but my report, my research is looking at militarization in Britain and there it's really uh, the promotion of a kind of conservative view of the nation and a, a conservative military view of the nation. Back in the 90s, uh, the military were concerned that the military was being infected by liberal societal values and therefore the military institution had to be protected from wider British society, um, which it tends to see as kind of decadent and hedonistic. However, once uh, Britain had entered wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, military chiefs were then a bit more bold about saying, look, rather than protecting the military against infecting liberal values, let us export military values to wider society. Um, and so there, um, what I'm interested in is how the military used Britain's involvement in war to justify the export of its values to wider society through promoting them through schools or through culture, entertainment, sports, um, in all these kind of different ways. Sure. Something you said really charmed with me there, been mentioned earlier, the, a militarism of the left. And that really kind of resonates with me. And I, I wonder what, what you mean by it, and if you could unpack what your view of that is. We can look at a left militarism, for example, in the Soviet bloc um, during the Cold War, where, you know, there's a patriotism and a pride in the armed forces and in the size of their missiles. 
um, and in Soviet history or socialist history, as they would call it. So there, there's a left militarism in justifying the use of force to defend uh, Mother Russia against imperialist invasion. There's also a left uh, militarism in terms of kind of anti-imperialist movements. So the ANC or um, uh, the PLO would need to justify their armed struggle against what they would see as the imperialist power sure. and therefore they would need to romanticise to some extent yeah. the the armed struggle in order to recruit people to go and fight that. Sure. So I think there's a bit more of an acknowledgement more recently that militarism can span the political divide. And in, in the UK, the British military has for hundreds of years really been associated with the right of the political spectrum. Mm. It's a very conservative yeah. institution. And if we look at um, a lot of the um, the veterans who have left uh, the military and become MPs, they're overwhelmingly conservative MPs. Yeah, so really the dominant you know, trajectory, the dominant influence of the British military institution is towards the promulgation of conservative military values. It's very interesting what you say, and I agree with it all, but it's also interesting to me how the, some of the kind of pioneers of this the recent militarisation offensive um, would certainly, Gordon Brown and people like that, um, while they are pushing what are conservative military values or making space perhaps to, to spread those around society, they would all self-describe as, if not liberal, then some kind of democratic socialist. It's interesting, isn't it? And I guess, and I guess that's maybe what I was trying to get at in terms of a, in terms of a liberal militarism as well as a left and a right, but a kind of centrist militarism as well. Does that ring true to you? Or does it tell us anything interesting that, that someone like Gordon Brown, who's nominally of the left, um, was a, such a, a key, um, figure in pushing the recognition of our armed forces in society report and all that stuff? Yes, absolutely. This is really, really important point. So, um, if I'm right and Britain is a heavily kind of militarized culture where this military history, militarized history is, is powerful and, you know, the Warrior Nation report demonstrates the popularity of the military institution amongst public opinion. Um, this kind of culture constrains what political actors like Gordon Brown or Tony Blair or even Jeremy Corbyn constrains what they can actually do. So, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's remarkable because here is the man of the left, the Benite left in the Labour Party, who's a long um, history of opposition to imperialist wars. Um, and yet he feels as leader of the Labour Party constrained to support the commitment to 2% of defence expenditure. Now, that doesn't necessarily reflect Jeremy Corbyn's privately held views, but he perhaps feels that within this political culture in which he exists, that it's very difficult for him to oppose increases in military expenditure or even oppose military adventures um, or rein in some of the militarist rhetoric about our latest enemy, whether it's China or Russia or ISIS or Al-Qaeda, um, that they feel constrained by the political culture and what they can actually say. So I try and draw a distinction between what might be the publicly 
expressed views of politicians and sometimes their behind the scenes understandings mm -hmm. and um you know whether it relates to uh, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq or even the renewal of Trident we can see that behind the scenes sometimes not always but sometimes Labour politicians will have a different view sure. but they'll feel that to take a stance for unilateral disarmament in the 80s or you know against war in Afghanistan in the noughties or against increases in defence defence expenditure more recently is going to be highly damaging to the Labour Party and its electoral prospects. Yeah. So it seems like if elected politicians are captive, in a sense, to militarism, and this, I guess this is a really interesting part of the report, what does that mean in terms of the encroachment of the military and militarism on democracy? How is that expressed? How has democracy been affected and hollowed out, I suppose you could argue, by by the, the new militarism, the new military? Militarization offensive. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is, goes to the heart of what the report was about and what my next book's about, which kind of elaborates on, on the report. And there the concern is, is that although we tend to think of, um, politics as the prime minister and the government are elected, they're the people's representatives and they implement their policy, um, what a lot of, um, academics and others have shown us is that that's actually substantially a myth about the way power in Britain operates. There are very powerful uh, forces and interests outside of government that help to shape and affect government policy. Um, and um, the, the government can therefore find it very difficult to control, say, the military when it's allied with powerful media interests, where there are groups in civil society, veterans groups or military charities um, or celebrities that are endorsing a particular course of action can make it very difficult for politicians to stand up to that. Fortunately, you know, th there are some constraints on this. There is, to some extent, a democratic culture in British society and among politicians, both of the right and the left, um, so there was some pushback by uh, Gordon Brown, uh, perhaps more successfully um, by President Barack Obama in the United States, because the US president was under similar pressure from the US military. And there we get the idea of not only the British military not operating in isolation, but maybe in alliance with other militaries within NATO um particularly the United States, where the military is also a powerful institution. And so Barack Obama used his political skills to outwit uh, the US military and bring about the withdrawal of US troops from combat operations in the United States. He was helped in that partly by using the circumstances of the time, but also there was strong public resistance to fighting these wars and in particular to casualties and deaths suffered by troops. So there is that kind of constituency there amongst the public that is very supportive of the military but doesn't want to sacrifice military personnel. I recall reading similar things about Crimea, which is one of the first widely reported wars, public outpourings of outrage because it was reported and because there wasn't censorship of soldiers' letters yet. But the kind of outrage at Tommy Atkins, if you like, is a long-standing 
it's, I don't know the degree to which it shapes British foreign policy, but it must be a consideration. It does seem to me, as, a, as somebody who joined the army, but growing up, and then and then later on, kind of trying to trying to understand the history of the thing, the uh, militarism waxes and wanes. It's almost like a uh, uh, the relationship between the military and the and civilian society kind of. Uh, dissolves a little bit and then something happens it generally seems to be a war and then they have to like patch it back up again and that seems to have happened around kind of the Falklands and, uh, and it certainly seems to happen around Iraq and Afghanistan and I have conversations with um, veterans uh, friends of mine for example a guy who joined in 1997 and I joined in 2004 and that was a time when it, it, if you were a soldier you were not popular there were separate pubs still in garrison towns for the soldiers and uh civilians and so on we were not well looked upon and probably correctly because we're quite a rough bunch uh, but now you see it and it's completely changed and that was very stark to me that um, I was I was in, in Australia for a couple of years and then I came back um, and uh, and the, the shift the way soldiers were suddenly lionized the way that, and why now recognizes the militarization offensive the way it had been expressed and taken hold in all kinds of ways on businesses in terms of discounts on, in television shows and stuff like that, it's very, 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 st- very a huge shift for me looking at it. And, and you talk about um, particularly around from two thousand six onwards, like the militarisation offensive or this current um, period of militarisation really came to a point and has been carrying on since then. I mean, what was interesting about that is that the the generals, if you like, they pursued maximum involvement in the Iraq and Afghan wars overstretched the military and created this crisis. They then blame that crisis on the politicians, but the advantage to them, to pick up on Joe's point, is that by putting your troops out there in war and having them be killed and injured, you, you all of a sudden, the military's all over the news mm-hmm. and you provoke this kind of defensive reaction mm-hmm. um, that can be then exploited to further increase... Uh, the power of the military vis-a-vis the politicians and it's a sacrifice trap right, right. Yeah. You, you you once soldiers are killed then you say well in order to justify their sacrifice we have to get even deeper mm. into this war and then when more are killed you say well look the sacrifice is greater now we have to keep we have to keep faith with this yeah. or else we're disrespecting yeah. the lives of those soldiers that were killed yeah. so yeah, there's there's quite an organisational calculation there in terms of increasing their prominence in society, making sure that they get bits of extra kit and defence expenditure, and then using that power to then turn and try to consolidate it. So that's partly why they wanted to continue with the war in Afghanistan and why the generals didn't like the idea that troops were being withdrawn from combat, sure. because... When they're in combat and when they're dying, the, the military and the news and the, the leverage that the military elite have yeah. over the politicians has increased. Mm. Sure. 2006, I think, was when Veterans Day started. Mm. And then was it 2009? Nine. Yes, because it's coming up to the 10-year anniversary this year, was Armed Forces Day, turning Veterans Day into Armed Forces Day. Um, would you say that that's one of the examples of this militarisation offensive? Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, there are a whole range of um, initiatives across society, sometimes initiated by the military themselves, sometimes by others, sometimes by people in the civil society, um, in order to promote military values. Yeah, Armed Forces Day would be a prominent one, but the military covenant kind of gelled a lot of these issues together, saying that the balance 
uh, between the military, uh, the government and British society was out of kilter and therefore the government and society had to change its attitude towards the military and perhaps even give the military greater privileges in order to right this imbalance in British society. And that's then the legitimation for further militarisation because they need to recruit people into the military. Mm. The beauty of the military covenant is that it's quite ambiguous and so it can be all things to all people. So even Jeremy Corbyn kind of signed up to the military covenant. So you've got people on right and left who are allowed to see something in the military covenant that they favour. So Jeremy Corbyn might see yeah, we need decent treatment yeah. for um, working-class squadders, if you like, whereas people on the right might see the military covenant as a way of promoting military power. Yeah. So you've got this ambiguity that allows everyone to see what they want to see in it, and therefore it becomes a really powerful bandwagon which people are reluctant to stand up to because you can always claim that that yeah. covenant is, is, is merely treating soldiers like ordinary British citizens. I think it'd be a really interesting piece of research to look at how different local authorities and councils are interpreting the covenant and how mm. they're how they're using it. Yeah, what, and how they're what, like politics, I suppose. Yeah. How does a Labour, a left wing Labour council in say Liverpool to a yeah. Tory one in the state be interesting with it? Which, it shows you just how difficult it is to resist this. And it's hard to argue with, isn't it? Like it's how, hard to argue with. It's almost with. like help for hero, that idea, which I find deeply problematic. But it's a hard thing to argue with. Mm. Uh, the idea that there's these young kids, these young lads who were coming back at the time, very injured. Mm. Like you of course you want to help them, but you're given no other option but to pursue it through this Kind very militarising agenda. Politicised, yeah. militarised route. Things that we now have here in this country, like Armed Forces Day, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, uh, discounts um, yeah. for salute troops. Our and troops. And salute yeah. our troops. Yeah. They feel very, very American. Well, I think the United States is the model for British militarists. They look across the pond and they see the veneration of troops in the United States and they want that for the UK. And that was clear from from the beginning beyond so we've got the um covenants the military covenants and also armed forces day um what are some other examples of evidence of this militarization offensive occurring in the last decade or so well i mean a key one would be the increase in defense expenditure so sure the fact that the military had this target of two percent and that they've achieved this and that this has cross-party support now including Jeremy Corbyn, it, it kind of shows you the power of uh, the way the military had been able to set that agenda. And it was something that even the Conservative coalition government had resisted up until, I think it was the 2015 um, general election. So that would be a major one. And of course, once that is established, then they're seeking to, you know, well, what's, you know, 2%? Well, that's actually not, in, not sufficient. We need 2.5 or 3%. And so, you know, the ratchet goes up as you try and increase further uh, defense expenditure. You might also see militarization in terms of, yeah, the, the number of veteran MPs that are now in parliament. You know, it's, Envision about 50 to 60, I think, MPs that have um, military experience. And of course, you know, so I say, well, it's great to have people from diverse backgrounds bringing that experience into Parliament. Um, but at the same time, they're overwhelmingly Conservative MPs. Yeah. Um, 
and a lot of them with a strongly pro-military agenda that yeah. are looking to crank up defence expenditure. Last week, Jeremy Hunt, I think it was last week or the week before, he gave a big speech and it was all about, you know, he wants to be the next Conservative leader. And he says the UK needs to double defence spending over the next decade. And that was that was the core part of his speech. Some interesting commentary on that. I think it, someone pointed out that um, Hunt, probably not from my position, but in the Conservative Party, is probably seen as more of a Cameron type. His speech and the way it contained a lot of rhetoric about the value of hard power um, seems to be something of a leadership pitch, and he seemed to be appealing to the backbenchers yeah. uh, who like a bit of that on the benches on on which many veteran MPs sit, um, the, the Johnny Mercers and the, um, what's his name, Bob Stewarts mm-hmm. and Richard Draxes. Um, so it's, yeah, it's very interesting what he said, mm-hmm. and doubling as well, doubling it, yeah, and lots of references to Russia and an assertive China. I guess part of what this militarism stuff is is about the next war. It's not about the last, they're using the last war, but it's about the next war and yeah. the next war and the next generation of soldiers, yeah. sailors and airmen and so on, and getting them through into the ranks. Well, yeah, um, part of the debate about what happened about in Afghanistan and Iraq is about the future of war. You know, what did we do right or wrong in Afghanistan? And the narrative has really been shaped again very much by the military in that there's been no inquiry into the conduct of the Afghan war um, and the military have been pretty successful in uh, deflecting responsibility for failure there on, onto the politicians and this means that there's no necessarily proper reflection or limitation on fighting future wars so you might have expected that after you know the disasters of Iraq and Afghanistan that Britain would be a bit more reluctant to get involved in the war in Libya for example mm. or in Syria yet there were still very strong political coalitions trying to ramp up and they did succeed in ramping up involvement in Libya mm-hmm. and of course that went pear-shaped and then they were looking to ramp up involvement in Syria as well Um, people on both the right and the left trying to justify that and that seems to be an indication that not an awful lot had been learned from Iraq and Afghanistan about what military force can actually do and how it's a very blunt instrument Mm. with limited effectiveness so the future of war is now being fought between those who talk about remote warfare and what's possible with that but I think the the old traditionalist. I mean, remote warfare isn't very satisfying, say, to the army that ideally would like to put boots on the ground because it's only really boots right. on the ground, troops in danger, under pressure, that's likely to... Give them the support that they want, the public backing they want. Give yeah. them the profile and the mm. backing that they want and allows them by deploying then to generate, use the sacrifice trap to mm. escalate their involvement further. And, you know, they, they seem to have few doubts about the effectiveness of military force and learn very little from what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan and how problematic that was. So you've got still debates within the military between those that want a light footprint and those that think that full-scale military interventions and expeditionary warfare is in the future. And of course, the latter is far more expensive and requires far more defence expenditure and a greater justification and and, and support amongst public opinion for those wars. At the moment, the, the military's problem is that there is pretty strong 
resistance to fighting wars. It's whether they can manipulate by deploying sure. and other factors and the use of propaganda yeah. in order to generate support for those yeah. deployments. And I come away, I, I have a sense, I don't know how accurate it is, but I have a sense from guys who are still in and from, from reading and looking at the, the topic a lot that post-Afghanistan, there's almost like a, it's kind of a jobs for the boys. It's an army that isn't really going anywhere. It's been badly cut. It's been hit by defense austerity. And they're kind of looking for these little jobs around the world. They can send little detachments. Mm -hmm. And it always feels like they slightly rue the fact there is no big war. There is no yeah. big stage. What can we it's not the same going we've sent 20 engineers to, to Kenya to build some stuff yeah. or put some guys here under a UN mandate. With the falling off of Britain's involvement in these wars, there's been a reduced public profile. And I think the military were anticipating that and were concerned about it. They want to be involved in these range of initiatives because that keeps them in, in the public eye and gives them something to do. Mm -hmm. um, and tries to insulate them against uh, defence cuts. They're also looking for troops to be kind of ambassadors in British societies mm -hmm. uh, in order to promote um, recruitment. I mean, you know, there's an ongoing uh, need by the military and by a militarist coalition, because it's not just the military, but it's also their allies, um, to promote military values to promote the power of the military so it's an ongoing process the the militarization offensive in 2006 was a striking example of that because it used a particular crisis that was in the news that was prominent um to really um put pressure on uh put pressure on politicians now that kind of crisis isn't currently here right. but that's not to say that the military would not be pushing and lobbying mm -hmm. for involvement in military activities whether they're you know sending the navy down to the south china seas or sure. deploying troops to eastern europe or sending them back to iraq or, or deploying them across the world arctic ice breaking is there seems to be a current mm -hmm. thing people are talking yeah. about the arctic ice is melting so our responses yeah. to militarize but, but it's it. a new theater it's just <laughs> it's one of those things that keeps coming out of the every now and then you see a report come out of the um, the Defence Select Committee and Johnny Mercer mm. will be ranting about um, the Arctic but of course it's a new zone which is contested isn't it yeah. so yeah and there's lots of uh, resources and things down there mm. but that's quite quiet that one I wonder when it will become the big yeah. topic Arctic it seems to be sort of contrive simmering in the background of, yeah. It, yeah. 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 yeah to send the Marines down give them something to do so I'm I'm really interested um, and I've written a couple uh, a few times about about the um, the idea of the dominant military narrative and what you say about it and it's of particular interest to me because I see how the military in its attempt to cover up its own failings and a lot of this is on the military more of it is on the military than the military would like to know by the army generals that has fed back particularly in the veterans community into a kind of reprisal almost of the kind of 30s fry corps stab in the back myth where these kind of liberal politicians let us down um and uh, and that's why things are bad um, uh, and I wonder if you could talk to us a little about how that dominant military narrative um, is expressed, how it's composed, uh, and how it functions. Yeah, so the idea of the dominant military narrative is to show how the military told a story that connected different elements together in order to blame politicians particularly for the failures in Iraq and Afghanistan. And 
enhance their own power over policy. And ultimately, this was, as you say, a stab in the back myth that is reminiscent of the German military after World War One, where they turn around and say, we've been stabbed in the back, we've lost this war only because the Jews and the socialists have, um, bet- and the politicians have betrayed us. Um, of course, that narrative empowers the military, but it's a very dangerous narrative in, in a democracy. And that has been picked up on the far right. And I'm just done the briefest survey of some evidence that's out there on the influence of this narrative on the far right. And it does seem to be there. And it seems to be something that these far right organizations believe that they can exploit. And latch on. Don't? This is why I say they parasitize by their very nature. These, these kind of anything military. Is a That's right. Term. Absolutely. And I saw a picture of Tommy Robinson just recently. And you could see these guys in military headdresses mm-hmm. right in the picture. And you can see the story that that's trying to convey. There was another, uh, was it a tweet where he was tweeted with a picture of yeah, him? Yeah, he took a of, selfie with a, with a bunch of... Um, yeah, recruits in basic recruits. training. Yeah, I wrote a Guardian piece about it, which yeah. got, got viciously attacked by the very, the very constituency he was talking about, by, by yeah. the far right. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's absolutely right that, that what he, he's trying to say something about his the far right being on the side of the troops and so on and so on. And it, it's very common across the far right. I think they love that. Yeah. And I think the dominant military narrative kind of plays into that far-right narrative as well. It's kind of, you know, what we need is British values, what we need is hierarchy, we don't want multiculturalism, uh, actually Britishness is, we assimilate, it's white, and mm. um, yeah, the, you can see why the far-right would um, exploit that and feel that it it benefits them and of course that's very dangerous for democracy because obviously we elect politicians and they're supposed to make the decisions and if they can't make decisions and if the the military and this military's coalition are impinging on their freedom to make these decisions then that's not a great situation to be what can people expect with your new book coming out is this are these all things that you expand on more um yeah it's called the afghan war and the militarization of british democracy so it's um an expansion and elaboration of the work that i did for the um for warrior nation for forces watch and going more deeply into the arguments and uh, elaborating um, on some of them and it's trying to draw the connections between what happens in Afghanistan or what happens in, in foreign and defence policy and what happens in, in British politics and society and the relationship between the two that they're not discrete, they're not separate, that there's a relationship going on there and um, they affect one another. Fantastic. Okay, so that is definitely one for people to keep an eye out for, yeah. and I'm sure we'll be covering it at Forces Watch when you when you when you publish it. Definitely. Um, is there are there any other ways that people can follow the work that you're doing, or, or pages that you can recommend? Maybe Twitter or a website where you publish articles. That is a an, an embarrassing question, Jim. <laughs> um, there is uh, um, this um, ResearchGate.net. If you if you sure. search that and my name, Paul Dixon, you should get my profile up. You'll get 
some of my publications on there. Fantastic. And obviously people should um, read Warrior Nation, which they can download uh, for free on the Forces Watch website. Um, so that's that's a key one that goes into uh, all of the things really that we've been discussing today. And your your edited book on camera uncertainty, I believe, which I yes, we should have a copy of it in the office, and I have one at home as well, which we have sent me, which is also very <laughs> impressive if you want to start to understand the issues about Britain's um, uh, idea of itself as an expert camera mm. Yeah, there's a chance that I might be able to make it available for free somewhere. Great, um, that was exciting. Again, it's very grave to really increase their rights to it. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Professor Paul Dixon, author of the Warrior Nation Report there. We hope you enjoyed the first episode of our podcast series. If you did enjoy it, we hope you'll share our work through your own social media. And for future episodes, you can check out our website at forceswatch.net, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at forceswatch. Stay tuned for our next episode, which we plan to release in about a fortnight. Until then, goodbye from me, Joe Glenton. And me, Rihanna Louise.